Welcome to Resiliency Within, featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras. In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well-being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine miller Karras. Welcome to Resiliency Within. I want to remind our audience that we're also live streaming on Resiliency Within's Facebook page. But I would like to extend a most heartfelt welcome to my guest today, Dawson Church. Um, and before we get started with our dialogue, I want to tell you a little bit about Dr. Church. We've been having a lively discussion before airtime, so I can't wait till we actually get started. But he is an award-winning um, science writer with three best-selling books to his credit, The Genie in Your Genes, Mind to Matter, and Bliss Brain, which we're going to be talking about today. And I love the full title of, of Bliss Brain, The Neuroscience of Remodeling Your Brain for Resilience, Creativity, and Joy. So we want you all to go out and buy this book. I have to tell you, I've been reading it and it is fabulous. So he's a scientist at his core. He's conducted dozens of clinical trials and founded the National Institute of Integrative Healthcare to study and implement promising evidence-based psychological and medical techniques. Its largest program, and I think you all know that working with veterans is dear to my heart, is called the Veterans Stress Solution, has offered free treatment to over 20,000 veterans with PTSD over the past decade. His groundbreaking research has been published in many prestigious scientific journals. He's also the editor of Energy Psychology, Theory, Research, and Treatment, a peer-reviewed professional journal. Dawson, welcome, 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 welcome. And as we get started today, what's on your mind as we as we just get started? Anything you want to talk about first before we get going with our dialogue? Well, I love this topic of resiliency, and I am so struck too as I do trainings with people and as I travel and meet people. Often, I meet people in virtual uh, meetings as well. But that there are two things we have to do as human beings. One is we have to solve the, the trauma problem. We have to resolve the things that hold us back. And if we don't, we just stay in that loop. The other thing is once we do that, and that's what I'm doing my newest research on now, is we are able to start to live our highest potential. So what I began measuring lately, Elaine, is transcendent states. And what happens when you both solve the trauma problem, step one, but then step two, move into those states. So uh, that's really what's on. What's, what, what I'm thrilled with by now is my unpublished research, what hasn't been published yet, but it shows that when we, when we access those states, all kinds of amazing things happen. So that's the, the, the process that I'm really most excited about right now. Well, I want to hear more about it as we go through today. But, you know, I'm, I'm curious about something. It's clear to me from reading about you, from our discussion that we had earlier, that you're you're very passionate about the work that you do and knowing that we all have a story. What, what called you to do the work that you're doing? What was it about your personal experiences in life that said, you know, I want to do this work. I want to study holistic health care. I want to do this work to... For what, for what was the what was the in, what was the impetus to begin well, this journey? Early research, like in the fifties and sixties, showed that our personalities form based on childhood experiences. They really start to gel around 15, 16, 17 years old. They're pretty much set in our early twenties, and so that tends to be largely who we are for decades to come. And that the person I was back then as a teenager was just so unhappy that mm -hmm. I, I thought about suicide often. I uh, didn't want, just didn't want to be here. I just you know wanted to 
get a ticket out of this place. And I, 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 I was that way at 10, 11, 12, 13, 15. And then at 15, I got involved in spirituality, went to live in a spiritual community. And that made a bit of a difference to my happiness level. And I, I was no longer completely, desperately, wretchedly, suicidally unhappy all the time, but it didn't make much much of a difference. And so you know, I, I got a little bit better. A few things fell in place for me. We studied what Aldous Huxley called the perennial philosophy, Alan Watts and Ramdas and all these amazing mm-hmm. teachers. But um, I, 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 I saw in the spiritual community and other spiritual communities too, that people were making smidgens of progress and you know the 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 bhagavad gita says only once in a thousand thousand lifetimes does a soul awaken and and the picture that we we get from spirituality and you know buddhism the wheel of time and and taking thousands of lifetimes is a pretty bleak one in terms of how long it takes and so then i thought well okay spirituality is moving along a snail's pace let's try psychology (laughs) <laughs> so I oh, well that was interesting okay thought maybe i can you know do, do better with psychology and what you quickly discover when you get into psychology is that if you want to find the most screwed up people on the planet go to a group of mental health professionals and the reason we're all becoming mental health professionals is we're trying to solve our own problems you know i mean helping other people is secondary to try to figure out the chaos inside so i discovered that in in, in mental health and and then I, I i did something when i was 45 years old that really moved the needle for me and i was in a really kind of a, a crisis kind of midlife crisis and i i decided i was going to meditate every single day I made that decision on a Tuesday afternoon. Wednesday morning, I set my alarm early. My kids were still little. They were in school. That We had to get up early in the morning. But I set my alarm clock really early, and I got up early and meditated. And the next day, and the next day, and the next day. And I haven't stopped for the last 20, 25 years. I've just kept on doing it. And that really has made the difference. I noticed within a month or two, many things began to change in my life. I learned energy therapies. When I finally learned tapping, EFT, TFT, energy psychology, all of these um, these energy therapies, what I found is that parts of my personality that were so fixed, that were so completely intractable, began to change. And I became a whole different person within a few years. I retrained myself. Then I finished my degree. I, began, I finished a book that had been stuck for 20 years, all kinds of shifts began to happen in my life. And I then became passionate about sharing these these kinds of of possibilities of rapid change with other people. And I've now watched thousands of people experience these shifts. I've trained thousands of people to deliver these shifts, whether the coaches or nurses or doctors or 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 therapists or whatever profession they're in. And we now have this big body of evidence, hundreds of studies showing that when you work using the energy therapies, you can rapidly change even long-term ingrained trauma. And so I'm just thrilled to be doing the research and then sharing this with people however I'm able to. You're just blooming talking about it, but there's there's a couple of things I want to just comment upon. And one is, if any of our listeners, they may have a child that's in the teens suffering, or maybe they themselves are suffering, I think one of the important messages of this show is that there is hope. And so when I think of you, Dawson, and how excited you are about life and living and sharing your bliss with others is 
I really want to emphasize for those listening who may be in a different state right now that they that you are listening for a reason. And Dawson and I are both going to share things today that may also help you go into a different trajectory of your life and that it's absolutely possible. And he's going to share the reasons why it's absolutely possible. So I wanted to say that first. I don't know if you want to comment upon that, um, Dawson. Yeah, and I'd say that you may not believe that. You may not believe it's possible because there's what we call the trauma loop. And the way this works in the brain is it's actually a little, it is a little circuit in the brain, right in the core, in the center of the brain. And people who are traumatized get into this loop. They can't stop repetitive negative thinking. They can't stop ruminating on the bad stuff. It's very hard to believe that you can break through and change. As I've done studies with veterans, we find that um, with the, the last time we measured it, when of every 12 veterans we would have contact with in our nonprofit, one would sign up for treatment. The others would say, PTSD is incurable, or I don't want to change, or I don't believe change is possible. It's possible to shift even complex PTSD. And, and the evidence is just there. It's just science has shown us that we know that we didn't have the tools even 20, 30 years ago. In fact, the American Psych Psychiatric Association did a comprehensive literature survey in 2005, and their, their conclusion was PTSD is incurable. Well, to, a lot's happened since then, and we now have energy therapies, and we're seeing people walking out no more nightmares, no more flashbacks, no more intrusive thoughts, no more hypervigilance in 10 sessions or less. So the evidence is just right there in our faces. It's and so, possible and believe and just, that you can shift. And I just want to say one thing. I think you might agree with me on this. And I, anyone who may have been given a diagnosis of PTSD, I want to say that I call it post-traumatic stress condition because a condition is something that happens, but it's something that can be healed. And I really want people to hear that loudly and clearly because I totally agree with you that we do have, we have many things, many modalities. But one of the things I think might be helpful for people, some people listening might say, energy medicine, what in the heck is that? <laughs> what is that? So can you give a description for our audience so that we can have a starting point with that? Well, think about your high school science class, or maybe your grade school science class, where the teacher had a piece of paper and they sprinkled iron findings on top. You had two magnets underneath and you move the magnets on the paper and the paper and is separating the magnets and the iron filings. As you move the magnets, the iron filings ch uh, are changing their position. So energy is like that. Energy is electromagnetism. Ele energy is gravity. Energy is the strong and weak nuclear forces. Those are the four forces of physics. And it turns out that experimentally, when you look at the, at the evidence for this, that when we change our energy, our bodies change. One simple example is, is thought and cortisol. If I've done several studies of cortisol. I did I did the, the foundational study of cortisol in the early 2000s. And we showed that when you use energy therapies, again, you're just changing your thoughts. Now that changes when you change your thinking, when you change your worldview, when you change your level of stress, your brain's energy fields change dramatically. And we can read this using an MRI or an EEG. So people's stress levels drop and we read those changes usually in the emotional midbrain, the center of the brain, and we can see that part of the brain just deactivate. Other things happen too, but a big part of the brain that just turns off is the emotional brain. We're no longer in that panic mode when we have an effective therapy. And when we do that, 
we see the level of cortisol molecules and adrenaline molecules, norepinephrine molecules, literally dropping really, really quickly. In a few minutes, your cortisol levels drop dramatically when you do energy therapy. So here we're just using thought and emotion, pure abstract things. What I feel, what I think, that's then changing the energy flows in the brain and immediately we're literally having a cascading effect across millions of molecules in our bodies. Well, the other cool thing that happens is we drop cortisol, we then free up the, its precursors to make DHEA, our most ubiquitous hormone and the foundation of, 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 of anti-aging and cell communication. So as we drop our stress hormones, our our repair hormones kick up. And so you're doing all of this by thought alone. So energy therapies are, are therapies usually body-based. They have to do with breath, they have to do with touch, they have to do with other ways of calming that 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 center of the brain and then having the brain waves change. When that shifts, molecules change. So energy, just like those iron filings, is the most efficient way in many cases of changing matter. So can I just say, I want to make sure that I'm, I'm, I'm getting this correctly, because even though you're thinking and feeling, but there's physiological changes happening in the body when you do that, which actually changes your stress response, which then changes all those molecules you were talking about. So rather than the cortisol being running rampant into your system, you're now putting the brake on. And that brake is now bringing your, your nervous system and your mind and body back into a state of equilibrium or balance. Am I saying that correctly or would you? Absolutely. And so if you look at the studies, for example, of, of emotional freedom techniques, or EFT, which uses acupressure. So it's pressure on acupuncture points in the body. But look at the studies of that for physiological things like levels of the uh, the markers of diabetes in the body, they drop dramatically. Again, several studies and replications of studies show cortisol dropping dramatically. Heart rate goes down and heart rate is a single number that is an overall indication of health. Athletes, people already fit, have lower resting heart rates and your resting heart rate drops an average of 8% after you use EFT. Um, heart rate variability improves your immune markers go way up, blood pressure drops, both systolic and diastolic blood pressure improves. So all of these physiological shifts based on using what, you know, we call it psychology as though it's something abstract or energy as though it's something imaginary, but it's having these dramatic measurable effects on our physiology. So would you also um, help our um, audience? What is EFT? Can you just explain it simply? Because you've used it a couple of times and people may not fami be familiar with EFT. Yeah, EFT is based on acupuncture and acupressure. And these uh, techniques have been around for thousands of years, initially in China and Japan. And then they really came into the West in a big way in, 19, in the 1970s. So they've been used in Western countries for um, decades now. And what EFT does is it has, it, it borrows pieces of cognitive therapy and exposure therapy. Exposure therapy means you think about the bad stuff which most people aren't too keen to do because it brings up all these bad memories and bad physiological sensations. They feel bad inside when they think about bad memories. And so it's painful to do. But with EFT, what you do is you think about the bad things. And then while you're thinking about the bad things and feeling bad, you are applying acupressure in the form of tapping with your fingertips on 13 points on the body. And when you do this, 
your level of emotional triggering just plummets. And what that does is it breaks the association in your learning and memory centers in your brain of thinking about the bad thing and going to fight or flight. And you break the association one time and it stays broken. Like I worked with one Iraq war veteran at Omega Institute in New York, where I teach every year. And this man had done four tours of duty in Iraq and had severe levels of PTSD. And in fact, when someone in the room took a water bottle, a plastic water bottle, a disposable water bottle, and they, they crunched it, making that crackling sound, this guy was ready to dive under the table because he was so triggered emotionally. It sounded to him like small arms fire in Iraq. So here is being triggered by innocuous stimuli, a backfire of a car, or being in crowds, or the scent of Middle Eastern cooking. We know any of these things could set him off. And he was largely dysfunctional. We tapped, we used that fingertip tapping on each of his, his traumatic events. After that, in just a short series of sessions, maybe half an hour, he was able to hear that cracking sound of the water bottle and have zero response to it. So we worked with people now and done this over and over and over again. And EFT, again, uh, hundreds of studies, thousands of case histories, is able to rapidly train the brain in the realization that my memory of a bad thing in the past is not a threat to my survival now and does not mean I have to go into fight or flight. And so in our follow-up studies, six months, 12 months later, even 24 months in some randomized controlled trials, people are no longer responding and reacting to those, those cues. So that's what EFT is in, in a nutshell. And I just want to emphasize and underscore what you're saying, because many people think, well, if I have those kind of um, physiological reactions to what's called implicit memory, we've talked a lot about implicit memory on this, on the show, that all the talking about it, stop reacting that way, don't react that way. If we're just using our cognition, our cortex, it's not going to stop it. There has to be something that inter, I would say intercepts that hijacking of your nervous system at that point. And what you're talking about is these pressure points are one way to do that that is quite effective. Yeah, they're a physiological way to do it. They're not a psychological way or a cognitive way to do it. Now, cognitive therapies are just brilliant and they have they have a, a great role to play, especially with cognitive problems. But a lot of our problems aren't cognitive. And to go to the other end of the life spectrum, you know, we, we aren't speaking until the age of around two. We don't have those, those implicit memories forming or explicit memories forming until later in life. So what happens if you were traumatized and you were one? What happens if you were traumatized in the womb? Cortisol crosses the placental barrier. And so many of us, if our mothers were traumatized or stressed, we will be learning the physiology of stress in the womb. What do you do in those cases? And that's where these body-based therapies, and it's not just EFT. I mean, there are lots of them. EMDR is fabulous. Somatic experiencing works. People can do yoga. They can do yoga nidra. There are all kinds of, of, of techniques. EFT is just super quick, which is what, why I use it. And you can't remember, like when you're stressed, when you're really stressed, your, all the capillaries in your, your prefrontal cortex, your thinking brain, your executive centers contract up to 80%. I have a little movie I show of this sometime, sometimes of, of this happening. So it's, it's like live cells, live capillaries in, in human tissue and cortisol hits and they go from this big to that big in a few seconds. So all of this blood is forced out of your brain into your muscles for fight or flight. And so you can't think very effectively. So, so cognitive therapies and therapies that, that require you thinking about something were great 
sometimes, especially for cognitive challenges like beliefs and worldviews, they don't work great often when you're under stress because you can't remember. You're having a fight with your teenage daughter and you can't remember nonviolent communication or active listening, but you can tap. <laughs> well, and I also think it's important for people to know that it's also challenging to have cognitive solutions if you're always in a state of stress, because if that's happening all the time, it's, you know, people, we even have colloquialisms in our language, right? He was so angry, he lost his head. <laughs> that's really, that's probably the simple way to talk about what you just said, right? And so I think it's important that people know that there are many, there are many roads to Rome, but sometimes the road to Rome is not just thinking about the way and looking at the map. You may have to have some physiological experiences that help you get to that to that place. And that's why I you know we talked we were talking before we started about you were, you were talking about something taking 12 seconds and you also in your book talk about um the stunning evidence of radical brain change. I think this is connected. Could you talk a little bit about that and some of the things that that possibly we could even do, but I really would love to hear the neuroscience behind the 12 seconds. Yeah, so Elaine, I have uh, an image in my book, This Brain, of a series of scans from an electron microscope. And what they show is two neurons. Now, again, we now have amazing technology where we can actually see down to the level of single neurons. So you see these two neurons they are on opposite sides of the image, and they're kind of shaking in the video. And they're shaking because they are communicating with one another. And then eventually they get closer and closer, they touch and they embrace like shaking hands. And so you see this in a series of images in this brain. And then you read the caption and it tells you this stunning fact that that whole movie of going from one side of the screen to the other and connecting takes 12 seconds. So every 12 seconds, if we are sending information through a neural bundle, we can create new connections. And so every few moments, we are creating new connections as we think and process and feel things. That's by thinking about a trauma, by reflecting on a bad thing that happened in your life. If you aren't using an effective therapy, can re-traumatize you? Because now you're making new connections all right, but there are the new connections of stress and you become more and more and more stressed. So if you look at the World Health Organization, for example, their uh, criteria and their treatment and their recommendations for depression. They say that the average depressive episode triggered by the job loss or the death of a loved one or whatever it might be lasts eight month, months and you get over it. PTSD isn't like that. It's progressive condition because as you're in that trauma loop, firing those neurons over and over and over again, you're building those neural bundles even stronger. So you want to definitely, if you're thinking about trauma, be um, using some way of counter-conditioning those stress responses. And then you build circuits for resilience. You start meditating, you start tapping, you start having positive social contacts. There are all kinds of ways of building resilience. Now, every 12 seconds, more neurons are shaking hands. Those, those neuron, neural bundles are getting bigger. And the old ones of traumatic stress, the research, brilliant Nobel Prize winning researcher of Eric Kandel showed that if you don't send those signals through those old neural bundles of anger and trauma and stress for, for two weeks, they start to fall apart. You aren't using them and the body has no tolerance for unused materials. So you start building the new ones of resilience. You start disintegrating the old ones of stress. And after a while, very quickly, within in, in one of my studies, within one month, people had both a deactivation of the stress centers and an activation of the joy centers of the brain after just 30 days. 
Oh my gosh. So I'm going to, so I want to ask you a question. So we have a model that, um, it's called the trauma resiliency model that I'm one of the key developers of. And one of the things that we say um, when we're explaining um, the treatment, we'd say, well, you can tell us as little or as much as you want about what has happened to you. And if you don't want to say a word about it, you don't have to. Um, in fact, we can just work with the sensations connected with you even bringing that image up right now. But one of the things that we do is I always ask for permission. Would it be all right as if I notice that retelling, if you want to tell me the story, that if it be, is becoming very distressing to you, that if we pause and we might want to bring in something that helps you get through your life, it could be your faith, it could be your child, it could be a fur baby, it could be <laughs> any number of different things, because it can be very unique to each individual, as we know. And I can see then when I do that, there's a definite shift in their nervous system. Often they'll have a parasympathetic response that it's like, oh, thank you. Like I was the hamster on the hamster wheel and I got to get off for a second. And there's a certain amount of calm. And then I say, okay, when you're ready, let's continue. Oftentimes they start talking about something even differently and they may not go to the same point they were in the story because even taking that pause changes them. But the other thing that I often do, and I, and I really want your, your opinion about this, is I go to the end of the story, I go, before we start, if you want to tell me, before you start in the beginning, can you tell me when you knew that you had survived, when you got through it, whatever that may be? Oftentimes that's an existential moment. And they'll go, oh yeah, I remember when the paramedics came. Or I remember when I saw my father's face, whatever that might be. So anyway, that's enough. Let me um, hear what your comments are about what I've been saying. Yeah. And when we remember our resources, then that's a positive entry to trauma. So in two things, in EFT, we have something called the silent movie technique. And it's just like an old fashioned silent movie where the, the client is playing the movie in their head. And while the, they're doing that, we're tapping with them. And it's powerful because they don't have to tell us the story. They don't have to tell us what actually happened in the movie. And a lot of clients don't. I mean, we, we worked with one guy about, veteran about 12 years ago, and he was a World War II veteran, and he had he had fought in the Waffen-SS of Adolf Hitler's Nazi Germany, and he was certainly not going to tell us what he had done in the war, so we did a lot of silent movie work with him. We worked with other people. We've worked with Rwanda and Holocaust survivors. We worked with Haiti survivors of the earthquake there in 2010. We've worked with a number of people. We're working now with people in Ukraine and Poland. And often they don't want to tell the, the story. And sometimes if you look at their MRI scans, there's a part of the brain called Broca's area, which handles language. And they think about the trauma and Broca's area just shuts down. And they can't tell you what happened to them. They, they may want to, maybe they don't, but it's up to them. But, but they, they, even if they want to, they can't because that part of the brain is just switched off. So there are a lot of reasons why you may want to process things silently. And there are, there are great techniques for doing that. And the other thing is, you know, the body-based aspect you mentioned is so vital because a lot of our memories are laid down in the body. The body keeps the score in the words of Bessel van der Kolk. Yeah. And so, for example, when we're a year old, when we're 18 months old in the womb, we aren't thinking and having cognitive memories we can describe, 
but our bodies are keeping the score. Our bodies feel those things. So in the EFT trainings I teach, we have a whole set of modules on how to work with clients non-verbally on those body sensations. Those body sensations are often traumatic memories. The client calls it pain. The physician calls it a diagnosis. We know that a lot of the time it's what uh, one brilliant physician calls a dissociative capsule that has been wrapped around a traumatic event and shoved down in the muscles, shoved down in the subconscious mind, inaccessible. And so those physical sensations are your way to get to those things. And the cool thing is even with complex PTSD, we have these wonderful methods. We can go there and we can, and I'm not gonna pretend we can, that that you know that every we have 100 success rate with co- no, complex of media, not, PTSD but... we we do not but um we definitely like we, we've done a lot of work with homeless people we have what one uh social worker for example on a team in in a in, a, in vans in baltimore and she goes out in the van into the homeless communities and she works with people there and it's a lot of them have severe mental illness and she's not coming back and, and emailing the rest of our practitioners and saying, oh, they were cured. But she is saying the schizophrenic has less anxiety about the next time it might And also might does happen. It, just even that with less anxiety. Oh my gosh, that could, could be such a huge thing for someone that has such a serious mental health condition. I It is time to take our break. I mean, I can see that I'm going to invite you to come back for it part two, because we're not going to be able to talk about all the things we want to talk about today. So we'll be back in just a minute or so, two minutes, um, as we take our break and hear from our sponsor. And we're going to continue this dynamic conversation with Dawson Church as he continues to respond to my question. So we'll be back in just a moment. Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma-informed and resiliency-focused individuals and communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to TraumaResourceInstitute.com for more information. Elaine Miller-Karras' book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models, is available on Amazon.com. The book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. The book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency. Elaine also offers personal consultations. For more information, you can contact her at Elaine at Resiliency within.com. Elaine Miller-Karras co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at traumaresourceinstitute.com. That's traumaresourceinstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience. Awaken hope. Your life. Your health. Your network. 
You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. This is Resiliency Within with Elaine Miller Karras. To reach the show during our live broadcast, please call in to 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Now, back to this week's show. This is Elaine Miller Karras back with. Dawson Church, our dynamic neuroscientist who's helping us understand more about how our brain works and and so importantly, how to heal the trauma that many of us have experienced in our life. So to continue, I want want to hear about the 12 seconds though. It takes how long for that brain to change when we do something that is actually cultivating our well-being? Do I have that correctly? Yeah, it happens quickly. And I discovered this when I did a study with some colleagues because we got access to some state-of-the-art, really high-resolution MRIs last year. And we were able to do a study. And I, I, I've always had trouble with meditation because my mind wanders, as does everybody's. And so about 15 years ago, I developed a, a series of techniques where I, I, I combine heart coherence from heart math, mindfulness, self-hypnosis, tapping, and a couple of other techniques together. And so I've been doing this for you know, 10, 15 years with people, and they, they like it. But we finally got a chance to put them in MRIs in a randomized controlled trial and see what happened to their brains in the course of doing the meditation for 20 minutes a day for a month. And our control group was doing mindful breathing. So we had a great control condition. We had the other people, the other group, the experimental group doing doing this. And when and what, what happens is they uh they then the neuroscientists who are running the study then aggregate all of the MRIs into one composite MRI and you see what's happening in the brain. And when we got our results back after a month, Elaine, they were they were jaw-dropping. We found that in one month, the brains of the people doing this simple meditation technique, called, it's called eco-meditation, had changed dramatically anatomically, their brain anatomy was different over a month. I mean, it's, it's like if you start working out in the, the gym and you get you know, your muscles balloon up like Chris Hemsworth in a month. I mean, just amazing. Look, look at these brain scans after a month. And the, the part of the brain that handles suffering, the default mode network, just shut down. And also the left prefrontal cortex shut down, which is the, the part of the brain that tends to be involved in like highly specific thought, uh, numerical thought calculations, that part of the brain was very quiet. And also the part of the brain to do with compassion was highly lit up. That, that part handles awe, gratitude, happiness, compassion. It was highly active. And this is where they weren't meditating. So in 30 days, these people had rewired their brains it was a stunning result. And that really made us aware of, hey, we, we have these techniques now, these energy therapy techniques. If you just stack them up on top of each other and practice them 20, 30 minutes a day, they are literally remodeling your brain. And so is that what you're talking about, the unpublished research that you're waiting to get out? I mean, this is very exciting. Is this published anywhere yet? Yeah, that's, that was published in a top journal called Innovations in Clinical Neuroscience a few months ago. And we built on that now by uh, developing an instrument with with Andrew Newberg, who wrote the book How Enlightenment Changes Your Brain, 
call the Transcendent Experiences Scale. It's a five-item, very brief survey that people are now starting to take, and that's telling us if they're reaching self-transcendence. We found that, um, so anyway, uh, what what self-transcendence is, quick definition here, is Abraham Maslow found toward the end of his life, he was going far beyond self-actualization, and a lot of the self-actualizers he was studying were just miles beyond being self-actualized, they were self-transcendent. And he began to define this. Uh, Mikhail Csikszentmihalyi picked up on his work, called it Flow. And we now have begun to study people in Flow. And with Andrew Newberg, I've developed the this, this questionnaire based on the five characteristics of people who enter self-transcendent states. We found that people doing eco-meditation for just a few days, all those people... 73% of them jumped into that self-transcendent state. It didn't take long. And we found that in time, six months later, 71% of people stayed there. We also found, again, a drop in heart rate, an improvement in blood pressure, drop in cortisol, rise in immunity, all these positive physiological markers, because again, the far less stress. So the, the big takeaway here is we have these tools now to help us shift quickly in a few hours. And it has dramatic effects on our health and longevity. They don't take long to learn. They aren't, they're secular. They aren't religious or spiritual. They're just stuff you can do, but that nevertheless has dramatic effect on your quality of life. And so, you know, you named your book, The Bliss Brain. Does it have to do with this transcendent um, experience that you're talking about? Can you describe the, you know, what is the bliss brain? It's drugs, Elaine. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, as I was as I was sitting there um, <laughs> meditating, and I just had a series of cataclysmic events in my life, I I found myself in these absolutely transcendently blissful states. I also looked at the research showing that, for example, Tibetan monks, if you look at the amount of gamma in their brains, which is, is the is the the brainwave of integration of flow of gratitude of compassion of happiness it rises dramatically when they're in these states i looked at the images of some of the you know the 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 the, the great mystics of history and I, I thought these people look stoned i feel stoned when i'm meditating so i then looked at the research into anandamide aka the bliss molecule and ananda is the sanskrit word for bliss and it has the same chemical structure as thc the active compound in marijuana, it's docking with the same receptors in our, our brains and making us feel good. And psilocybin, magic mushrooms, docks with serotonin receptors, but we can raise our serotonin dramatically with the right kind of meditation. Dopamine, that's active in the brain's reward center, cocaine, heroin cravings. The dopamine of people who are meditating effectively rises 65%. Ayahuasca, ecstasy, all these drugs act by docking with these receptors in our brains. So you sit there, you do an ecstatic meditation, have floods of anandamide and and serotonin and so flooding your brain. And you feel absolutely stoned. This is organic. But this is organic. You're not taking yeah. medication or anything. It is happening by the simple act of attention. 
Yeah, the only reason people are going and wanting opioids and all this other stuff from the outside of their bodies is they just don't know you can generate it all internally. But the only reason it works, the only reason morphine works is that it has the same chemical structure as beta endorphin. Beta endorphin is five times as powerful as synthetic morphine. So we have all this neurochemistry of this pharmacopoeia of pleasure, ecstasy-inducing drugs in us. I mean, read Rumi, read Hildegard of Bingen. You get absolutely sky high with this stuff and you feel wonderful so yeah that's what uh, I'm, I'm well and so and people might say oh why would i want to be sky high you're talking about when <laughs> so, so i guess i should ask you that why sky high but i mean when you're in that blissful state you're also talking about states of creativity absolutely yes. joy you're just so happy you don't know what to do with this i mean you just weep with with joy and gratitude when you're in those states sometimes it's overwhelming it, it, it is so blissful the, the the challenge is that we have to we have to actually have we have a set of, we have a group of special mentors because when people start to experience this joy and bliss they just get what you think of as your human personality just starts to crumble. It's like the, the, those old habits and ways of coping with the world just start to fall apart. So we have a special set of, of trained mentors to like take people by the hand and say, okay, when this happens, here's what you do. Because we found there's a series of developmental milestones. Now, Harvard has been studying this as part of the Adult Development Project for since 1938. And the finding that, that, that beyond self-actualization, moving to self-transcendence, there's a whole set of developmental milestones. And most people don't even know, know they exist. They're there in Sufism, they're there in some mystical schools, but there are various stages we pass through. The next generation of neuroscience research is we're gonna start mapping how these are changing the occipital cortex, the parietal lobe, the temporal parietal junction. Many parts of our brains are shifting as we go into these ecstatic states. This is a little bit different question. So, you know, in these ecstatic states, and I'm glad you're going to be doing more research on it, but there's something that has happened in the work that um, that um, I do around the world. And that is I help people to um, discern the difference between sensations of distress and well-being in their body. It's, it's very it's very simple, actually, and compared to what um, you're describing. But what happens when people do that and they're able to get into their zone of well-being is that oftentimes they have this great sense of self-compassion and they will even say, um, you know, I feel I can give myself some grace about whatever I did. It really is quite beautiful to see the, um, what people will say. And when they say it, there's also this incredible overwhelming sense of being present with them that you're almost in the state of grace with the other person. You are. Yes. Well, I, so I am in the state of grace with the other person. But then the magical part to me, the other part, is that, and this happened with a group of people that we worked with in the Ivory Coast and in Rwanda, they can see people that were literally responsible for the death of their family members and say, I can look at that person now. And even though they were responsible for this, and I can have compassion for what many people did at a time. Uh, unthinkable time. But see, to me, this is not only about, you know, personal ecstasy. This is about grace, sacredness, but it's also about healing the traumas of the world. You know, why do we do all this for our own individual, um, uh, unique, uh, wanting to get into our zone of well-being or have these blissful states, but it impacts society. 
Well, and that's the big difference between the mystic of today and the mystic of a thousand years ago. So uh, the basically Rwanda and Ukraine and Haiti, I mean, that was the Middle Ages. And back, go back to medieval England, Germany, France, um, even India and China, go back a thousand, two thousand years. I mean, life was nasty, brutish and short there. You needed to be on high alert all the time. We don't need to be that way anymore. We live in a world in which those things are no longer adaptive. And if we keep on acting in a hostile, suspicious way to those unlike ourselves, we're dooming our species. So now we, we have to learn a very different way of being. And we can do that quickly because we're remodeling our brains. We're feeling much happier. You do then move into compassion for other people, but you don't need to do what we, they did a thousand years ago, which was go and take vows and go to the monastery or the convent no, no, and build a wall around yourself and have a happy little monk life there. You need to be out there marching. You need to be out there protesting. Okay, You need to be out there donating. You need to be out there doing and giving and volunteering. And so our, our times are calling for us to be mystics and be fully embodied as mystics, not be disembodied mystics, and then be activists and go out and do stuff. That's, that's why I started the Veteran Stress Solution, because I wanted to bring this to to, to veterans who, who are suffering. So we, ha we have a world in which we can't just escape and be in our beautiful little bubble. We have to directly confront the, the, the issues in the world. I mean, cl climate change is an existential crisis for humankind. So uh, we need mystical activists now, not just <laughs> cloisters. Mystics. Well, and Hannah, also you said something I thought was really important, embodied. This has to be embodied, right, in order for us to be in that in that that state, in order to make that change. So um, then, I, I have another question for you, and this is kind of the the tough questions of society as it is today and in America. There's so much divisiveness, um, and you know, you know, sometimes you know, I don't even want to watch the news anymore sometimes because it's just too much. And I I know that I'm not alone. I've heard many people talk about that. And then I think, well, you can't, you know, be the ostrich bearing their, your head in the sand because if you don't <laughs> yeah. know what the problem is, then how can you be the activist that you need to be like about climate change or whatever it is? So I would really be interested in how you look at the current state from your, you know, obviously your neuroscientific perspective and also your, your I would say it's kind of enlightened state that you're talking about, Dawson. I'm appreciating your, your point of view. Yeah, well, in, in the last chapter of Bliss Brain, I zoom way out and talk about social problems, climate change, uh, income inequality, gender inequality, all of the, the tough questions of our, our time. And I look at the data, and this is where zooming out is really helpful. So if you're zooming in, is your Google or Apple or whatever newsfeed you're using. And I, I counted my stories on my Google newsfeed. It's about 85 stories every day. And when there's war, there are 85 stories. When there's peace, 85 stories. When the economy is doing well, there are 85 stories. When it's not doing well, there are 85. There's always 85 reasons to get upset and triggered that Google is, is shoving in my face every day. And that's that's the that's the that's the small perspective. The large perspective, zoom out, look at global trends, look at global trends in the last. So 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 there's one. A place where um, in in chapter in the final chapter of the Spain, I, I I have a whole bunch of charts, graphs, and big picture stuff. Just take violence, the number of people killed in war, who are combatants and civilians, century by century, going back a thousand years, it just drops 
century by century by century. We're literally becoming less violent as a species. Now you look at the horrendous carnage of the Holocaust or World War II or World War I, you think, are you nuts? I mean, this, you know, this right now we have the Ukraine war happening. We have the those those cataclysmic wars happening in the, the 20th century. But have, have we forgotten the American Civil War, the Napoleonic Wars? I mean, the Franco-Prussian War. There were horrendous wars in the 1900s, even more violent ones in the 1800s, even more horrendous ones in the 1700s that go, goes going back. So, you know, these big trends, female, morta- uh, female uh, 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 women who, who die in childbirth, maternal yeah. mortality. A uh, n- number of women, women, female literacy in the world. Just look at the graph of female literacy in the world. I mean, it's 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 shot up in the last fifty years. Look at human rights. Now, it doesn't doesn't mean that that human rights are getting collectively better every single year everywhere. They aren't. It's it's spotty, but generally, dear, since World War II, we've had an improvement collectively, globally in human rights. Um, in terms of financial well-being, the average global citizen is three times as wealthy today as he or she was in 1980. And it's not all at the top. Uh, in some countries like the US, there are these huge income disparities, but in a lot of countries, they, they don't have those. And it's it's more evenly spread. So in the last chapter of the book, I, 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 I present all kinds of, of high-level scientific data so showing that our lives are actually steadily improving. Again, are we denying that there's a huge problem with birds dying? We're not. Species extinction. I mean, all these things are real, but we need our resources to tackle them rather than focusing on narrow those 85 stories on Google today and thinking those are reality. When you zoom out and get the big data, that is just all it is, is that motto of the newsroom. If it bleeds, it leans. I'm just going to show you the most dramatic stuff to make you frightened and upset so I can, I can get your eyeballs and advertise and push stuff on, on you. So that the way to look at it is that zoomed out perspective. And when you do that, again, you have a much more accurate view of reality. And so I guess that comes, you know, into um, then I guess the next question, because I mean, in terms of that, I don't think we're going to, if we listen to the media or we're on social media, there's going to be a bombardment. So what do we do in, to, you know, I often say on this show, what else is true, but you, you call them in your book, the deepening practices. And it seems to me like the deepening practices would be one avenue that could help with the kind of activation that we may feel in mind, body, and spirit when we hear this bombardment. Because I think what you're saying is true. I often, I've been um, been so lucky to have been invited to the Skoll Conference in Oxford. And when I go there, I say, why aren't the media there in droves? Because <laughs> everyone there is yeah. a entrepreneur doing something amazing in the world to make the planet better um, and deal with all sorts of things, whether it's climate change, whether it's infant mortality, whether it's domestic violence, whatever it might be. So I am totally in agreement with you. So can you talk a little bit about what you talk about in the book? Because when people pick it up, there's actually exercises that you could start to do today to start creating those 30 days of well-being that's going to change your brain. So let's talk yeah. about that in the time we have left. I think that's important for people to hear it. Yeah, at the end of each chapter, I have something called deepening practices, and I have a link there with free resources. And so I want it's just so powerful to take care of this thing behind our ears. If we are taking care of our brains and taking care of our minds and filling our minds with positive inputs. So I don't deny all the bad stuff, but I counteract it with a healthy dose of the good stuff. Go to positivenews.com, go to all the 
positive news sources, you'll find all kinds of stories. I mean, overwhelming stories from all over the globe. You'll never hear on the regular me media because they aren't. They, they don't follow that if it leads, it leads dictum. And so there's all this, this positive stuff happening here. So th those deepening practices give you links to positive sources like that. And then you're responsible. If you are just orienting yourself to the bad stuff, it's like having a... Um, um, a, uh, a, a, a pimple on your, your, your chin, focusing on the pimple and ignoring your, your beautiful face and your beautiful body. So you can orient to the bad stuff and stay focused on that, or you can broaden out and deliberately fill your mind and your life with positive media, positive practices. So do that. I also recommend in the book, I recommend you start out your day that way. So when people wake up, their brains are still coming up to speed. They're slow. You're in theta and delta, the two slowest brain waves. As you wake up, you drift into alpha, then into beta. Before you're in full-fledged waking mind, beta brain waves, meditate. And so you do a meditation early in the day. While you still have those slow sleep, delta and theta waves, you then frame your day positively. And we've interviewed people as well as doing a lot of research on this. And we ask people a question, which is, what happened in the last week on the days you skipped meditation? And the answer is almost always, my day didn't go very well. Mm. Didn't go nearly as well as the days I did meditate. So you're now taking charge of your destiny. You're saying, I'm going to do something with my consciousness every day that's going to orient me to my own well-being. So you're, you're making that, that choice for your own good. Again, you're lowering your cortisol. That's going to make you more resilient. That's going to lower your stress level. That's going to improve your level of immunity. So you do these practices, make them part of your life. And after a while, the cool thing about dopamine, serotonin, anandamide, oxytocin, beta endorphin, and so on, all these other brain drugs, is they're highly addictive. You get all totally addicted to feeling good. And so bad things happen. You feel bad for a little while. But the contrast between how your baseline of feeling good every day that you've established in the last, say, 30, 60, 90 days, and the bad thing that happens means you correct really quickly. Again, we mentioned that when you're under stress, up to 80% of the blood flows out of your thinking brain. Well, when you de-stress, it all flows back, and then you are much more alert. So the final thing that we're studying now is workplace productivity. What happens in your workplace? And there, the results of a study being published soon are amazing. Your productivity, it shows in the first month, now this is just this is just month one, rises 20%. You are now accomplishing in four days what used to take you five after only one month of these deepening practices. And so you're a much more productive person after that. We've also done a long-term study and it's even better after six months. So you know, you know, a more effective human being in the world, and your life starts to change. The lives of those around you start to change, and you start to have an impact on the world around you. So, do the deepening practices not just for you, but for everyone around you, and you'll see that there are ripples that start to spread around you, and your life becomes better. But you become a light. And again, we're tracking this in, in various pieces of research. And your light starts to shine so brightly. You start walking into a room and everyone, <laughs> everyone so, feels so better. So, Dawson, I want to say to you, I can see your light. I, I hope people can <laughs> hear your light. We only have a couple minutes left. Um, 
How do people get in touch with you if they would like to um, learn more about it? I know you have a website. Can you share that with us now? Yeah, the one thing I'd have you do is go to Dawson, just my name, D-A-W-S-O-N, DawsonGift.com, G-I-F-T, because you can download the EFT mini manual there and also a special immunity meditation that's been shown to boost your immune system. So DawsonGift.com is the one place to go. Then you'll find our certified practitioners. You'll find our online courses. You'll find our stress solution app, which where you can do a session with a live practitioner. All of that is available through DawsonGift.com. That's the access point to start at. Dawson, first of all, thank you so much for being on the show. I have learned a lot. I know that our audience has has heard your bliss and heard all the positive <laughs> and hopeful messages. And I just want to say to our audience, um, thank you for being here with us today. And if anything, what else is true? I think we've heard it today um, to remember as you go through your life. And if you're feeling those, those states, like we've been talking about, of depression or sadness, Try to look around you and see what else may be true. And um, for those of you on Facebook, Dawson is doing the heart um, symbol with his hands. And I'm saying that for all of you that are listening, it's very easy to do. And when we do that, right, we are we are making the heart. So I love that. Anyway, like there we go. <laughs> so until we meet again, this is Elaine Miller-Karis signing off for Resiliency Within. Thank you, Dawson. Mm, bless you, Elaine. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us this week for Resiliency Within. Please tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Elaine Miller-Karras, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon. Resiliency Within with host Elaine Miller-Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. Visit traumaresourceinstitute.com.